All right. So I'm assuming everyone can hear me well. I'm not going to turn on the mic. I have pretty big lung capacity, obviously, so uh, I can project pretty well. Um, so we are going to be going through the book of Esther. And so uh, first I'm going to talk a little bit about why Esther, other than the fact that, that Hal asked me to, whenever he's coordinating Sunday school, he asked me to do something uh, biblical. And so we all do things that are biblical, obviously, but he wanted me to actually focus on a book from the Bible. So yeah, he had, uh, he had, uh, he told me that, uh, uh, Richard had already laid claim to something historical and, uh, I did something systematic last time I taught Sunday school cause I taught on, uh, baptism and the Lord's supper. And then, so John was going to do something systematic. He said, so we want you to do something, something biblical. I was like, okay, that's, that's a firm argument. And so, um, he said, he gave me some examples. Uh, he said, you could do, like, for example, you know, the book of Jonah. He said, or the, or the life of Elijah, which I'm very glad I did not pick because Ben has blown me out of the water on that. So um, I'm really glad I didn't, didn't pick the life of Elijah. And uh, I, I went back and forth on a couple of things. And I, I settled on Esther because just uh, we've got some, some newer faces in here. Um, as far as uh, the history of our church goes, uh, Richard and Lynn have been here about a year and a half, about right, two years, something like that. Uh, we've got some, some older older folks, and Kenny and Amanda have been here before us, a little bit before us, not, not far before. Miss Janet and Cody have been here a long time before we have. But uh, So I went back and I looked at uh, what books had been covered since we've been here. Ashley and I came here the summer of 2012 and so these are these are not going to be in the order of what they um they were preached uh, i think when we came pastor thomas was in he was either at the end of first samuel or at the beginning of second samuel i think um so just to kind of go through pastor thomas preached through genesis um, before he went, he was in Mark. Uh, Hal taught on Leviticus in Sunday school a couple years ago. Uh, Tiago did uh, Joshua a couple years ago, and then Ruth um, right before he left to go up to Capitol Hill. Like I said, Pastor Thomas has done First and Second Samuel, um, and then uh, Tiago's done Job. Hal's done Proverbs. Uh, Pastor Bill Lash, when he was here, did Ecclesiastes. And so uh, we've, got, we've got kind of the Pentateuch covered. We've got some of the history, the pre-exile history at least, covered. We've got the, some of the wisdom literature and the, the poetic literature covered. Um, Hal right now is doing Ezekiel, so we've got a major prophet. Even Hal did Amos a couple, a couple years ago. So we've got a minor prophet covered. We've got a gospel covered because Pastor Thomas is doing Mark right now. Uh, no one's tackled Acts yet, so Acts is you know kind of like an appendix to the gospel. So I'm waiting on someone to, to do Acts sometime soon. Um, we've got Paul covered because Tiago has done since we've been here Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Um, John did First and Second Thessalonians in Sunday school about a year ago. Uh, still waiting on someone to do Hebrews. I'm real excited about that because no one's done Hebrews yet and. You know, I don't know if we should have a favorite book of the Bible, but Hebrews is, is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, if that's, you know, if God is uh, honored by that, I think he might be. But um, just leaving that on the table. And then uh, Pastor Thomas, before he did Genesis, was in James. 
No one's done uh, any, uh, any of Peter's epistles. R- Brother Rusty did First John, and then uh, Pastor Thomas did Revelation a couple years ago. So we've got pretty much everything covered as far as categories go, except for uh, Peter's epistles, Hebrews, which I was not going to tackle Hebrews because Hal gave me a, a 12-week time limit on this, so can't, can't do Hebrews in that. Might have could have done Peter, um, but I said we haven't had anything from post-exile Israel history. So we've got, um, you know, First and Second Chronicles, even though it was probably written post-exile, it's not... Um, describing events that were post-exile. But, so we've got uh, some of the minor prophets we could have done, Haggai, Zechariah, but like I said, Hal did Amos, so we've got one of the minor prophets covered. Um, We could have, other choices were Ezra or Nehemiah, post-exile history there, or we've got Esther. And I I picked Esther mainly because it's tough. It's it's a tough book to teach through for some reasons that we're going to get to in just a minute. Um, and so we're going to dive into this today. Today we're going to get an introduction, and then next week we're going to start um, actually looking at the, the text of Esther itself. So first of all, uh, because of my time limit today, and I didn't want to spread out the introduction into more than one week because I've, I've got a, a somewhat uh, mushy 12-week time limit here, but still I didn't want to do two weeks on an introduction so today, I'm not going to go through any of the, the authorship debate, you know, um, who wrote it. Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, might have been Ezra. Might have been some random scribe. Might have been a Persian scribe. Don't really know, so I'm not going to get into those arguments. I'm not going to get into any of the arguments that might debate the historicity of it. So if the events actually happened, if it's some sort of embellishment of events that happened. Uh, because of our view of Scripture, we're going to take the view that these things actually happened. It describes people that were actually there, and it uses their names, at least their, their Hebrew names. And so these are real people with real events that happened. Um, so we're not going to go into things like that. We are going to talk about some of the, the themes of Esther, uh, the main characters, things like that. We're going to set the historical stage in, for, in the form of uh, where it stands in redemptive salvation history. And so, uh, first of all, it, it is actually a very uh, wonderful wonderful piece of literature. Um, it tells a, tells a very good story. You know, if you were to, to give this to a, a middle school student or something, uh, you, could, you could see that it's got this nice hero's arc about it. Um, we have this, this heroine. We have a, a romance between a peasant girl and a king, basically. We have a, a wise advisor who the heroine is related to in, in Mordecai. We have this evil villain, Haman, uh, we have this, these dramatic and apocalyptic threats. All the Jews are going to be destroyed here. Um, these threats to the protagonists themselves, Esther and Mordecai. Because like we've got this U-shaped storyline where we've got um, everything seems fine. Then everything is drastically not fine. Everyone is going to be destroyed. Then we have this poetic justice at the end where, uh, to give you a spoiler alert if you've never read Esther before, Haman gets hanged on his own gallows at the end of it. Um, and so at the end, we have this, uh, we'll call it a happy ending. It's a, a pretty brutal ending, but it is a, a happy ending as far as God's covenant people are concerned. And so we've got this really nice piece of literature. It has all these marks of a really good piece of literature. But as we know, uh, good stories and, and good pieces of literature aren't always good for the soul. Um, 
you know, many cases of that in our world and centuries previous, there's really great pieces of literature out there that, you know, um, instill some, some bad morals or uh, are not honoring to God. But uh, Esther is a good piece of literature that is honoring to God for uh, none other than the fact that God has chosen to include it in his holy word. But it, it is kind of a, a book that is kind of tough to handle as a Christian. We'll talk about that in just a second. But before I do, I just want to show you. In Esther, um, I would encourage you all, if you're going to sit through this, which I hope you do, um, to go home, and not necessarily today, but before Sunday next time, to go home and just read the book. Read it through. It's a, a fairly short book. In this Bible right here, it is six and a half pages. It covers six and a half pages. Um, the print's pretty small in this Bible, but still, it's only, only six and a half pages. A very uh, slow reading of this you should be able to do in, you know, half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour if you're going really slow. So I would encourage you next time to, before we actually dive into the text itself, to just read through the whole book on, you know, Saturday afternoon after you get the kids to bed or, um, you know, even if you want to wake up on, on Sunday morning and uh, read the book. Because... Um, Teaching from, from texts itself, isolated in Esther, is kind of tough to do without understanding really the whole story as a, as a whole. And then understanding Esther as a singular book is actually really difficult without understanding the story of the Bible as a whole, too. We'll touch on that in a minute. And so, some of the, the main characters, I've already given, given their names, but some of the main characters in the book that we're going to encounter. Um, obviously, we've got Esther, the namesake of the book. We've got Mordecai, her relative, and who is her uh, wise advisor that, that displays some, some, some good traits and maybe some bad traits, too. Uh, we've got uh, King Ahasuerus. We've got um, Haman, who is our, our evil villain who's wanting to destroy God's people. Um, we've got the king's wife, Vashti, in the middle. We've got uh, Haman's wife. Uh, she's going to be mentioned in the book. But, but there's one character that is uh, conspicuously absent from the story, from the entire book of Esther. It's kind of a softball, but anybody want to give a shot at who that is? Exactly. God is nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. He is not mentioned once in his covenant name, Yahweh. He's not mentioned as Elohim or Jehovah, even generic Hebrew word for God, El, is nowhere in the text. We don't have any prayers in Esther. We don't have any miracles in Esther. We, um, none of this. Um, just as a side note, anybody have a guess at the, other, the only other book in the Bible where God is not mentioned? Any ideas? I didn't know this beforehand. I had to look it up. It's actually Song of Solomon, so a uh, little bit different. Not a historical book or any, you know, it's love poem. Um, you know, debated on exactly the what the love poem's about. Song of Solomon is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to to interpret and um, to preach on or to teach from. But that's the other one in the love poem of Song of Solomon. God's God's not mentioned either. But Esther, as a historical book, it's really strange that God is not mentioned. You know, in all the other historical books. Um, even in the, you know, the New Testament itself, even in those tiny books, you know, Second John, Third John, and Jude, God's all over those books. And then in, um, you know, 
the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles. God's all over those. Joshua and Judges. You know, God is at least pronouncing his judgment on people all throughout. Um, but in Esther, nowhere to be found. And then, not only is, is God absent from the book, but really the main heroes of the book, Esther and Mordecai, are a bit uh, morally ambiguous in a lot of cases here. So, um, at, at best, really, morally ambiguous. A lot of times their motives are sometimes kind of nefarious almost. This is one of the other things that makes it really difficult to teach from in the Bible and the book of Esther. And so the, we have another book that's also set in the quarter of a pagan king, the book of Daniel. We've got that. They're, Israel's been exiled to Babylon then. And we've got Daniel and all of his comrades, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they're pretty morally upstanding in their book. You know, they, they refuse to bow. They, they're praying with open windows. Um, and so we don't really see a lot of the bad things that come out in Esther and Mordecai as you do in Daniel and his friends. We, Mordecai, he's in some ways displays a, some sort of measure of pride whenever he refuses to bow to Haman. And in doing so, really puts every Jew on the planet, you know, their lives at stake when he does that. Um, even though Haman is actually his, his civil superior at that point, um, it doesn't really look like that, you know, Haman is considering himself to be some sort of god that Mordecai needs to bow to. So that's going to be kind of tough to tackle later on. Um, and then he goes on to ad- advise Esther to hide her Jewish identity, um, which probably not a good thing. You know, Daniel and his friends didn't hide that they were Jewish. They refused to eat at the king's feast, the things that they shouldn't eat. But Mordecai tells Esther, you know, hide the fact that you're Jewish, um, which would then essentially basically lead her to violate a lot of the Mosaic law, especially the dietary laws, whenever uh, King Ahasuerus prepares these feasts. Um, And she doesn't really seem to have any concern for the Mosaic Law at all. It's not mentioned. Uh, She could have, but we're not given that explicitly in the text. She does then go on to hide her Jewish identity while spending a year in a spa with other Persian virgins preparing to to come in to the king. And then at the end of this, she loses her virginity to a, a pagan king in his bed without being married to him. So these are... Uh, these are tough things to handle, but we're going we're gonna to handle them in the, the most God-honoring way that we can. And then at the end, she's actually very brutal. Brutal. She tells that they need to hang Haman's sons on his gallows as well. Um, she orders the Jews to go slaughter more people than they've already slaughtered. And so all of these things is, is going to make it really difficult for us to read and to study through as, as Christians. Um, a lot of these things that, you know, if you don't... Uh, have a firm, firm commitment to, to reading scripture as it, as it presents itself. And you tend to see the Old Testament as a lot of these moral, moral stories that are, are meant to inspire us and to, meant to um, firmly root us in our morality. It's kind of hard to read Esther if you're just looking at it in that, that characteristics, with those characteristics, instead of, instead of seeing it as, as God um, confirming to his covenant people that they still are his covenant people and that the Messiah is still going to come from the tribe of Judah. That's kind of kind of be the overarching story here. Um, the other thing that makes it difficult to kind of teach from this is that the early church was actually really mixed on, on Esther. There are actually no commentaries from the, the first seven centuries 
of the early church produced on this book. Uh, as far as we know, uh, John Calvin never preached from it. He doesn't really write anything about it. And then here's a quote from Luther. Luther says, I am so great an enemy to the second book of, Ma- of the Maccabees, apocryphal book, and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. And I'll have to agree with him. It does kind of seem like it has some heathen unnaturalities right there, but um, I I couldn't find the exact date that Luther said this. Luther tended to spout off some things sometimes. Uh, You know, he said some similar things about James early on and then went back to repudiate them. But I'm hoping that, that... Luther kind of came to his senses later on. I don't, don't know. This could have been later on in his life. But um, all that to say, not a lot of uh, even the most brilliant minds in, in Christian history really wanted to tackle the book of Esther because there's a lot of these difficult things to deal with. But we affirm the doctrine of Scripture. We affirm that God has preserved what he wanted to preserve to this day, all 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So we can't afford to just outright dismiss the book of Esther. We've got to engage with it. We've got, it is worthy of our, our reverent attention. For the reason that Paul says in Romans fifteen four, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So it was going to take some endurance to make it through this. But there is, there is encouragement for Christians today when we read the book. So Paul specifically speaking about the Old Testament there. It's written for our instruction. It's going to provide encouragement for us and it's going to give us hope. So hopefully at the end of this, even at the end of today, we're going to see that this actually does provide us some hope studying this book. So with that, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. And then we're going to, we're going to set the historical stage here. Let's, let's go back and think about exactly how we got to the point to where Esther begins. So we've got, you know, we've got Abraham. Abraham and his family, they were called out from the land of Ur. They come into the promised land. They, they live there and God makes his covenant with Abraham to uh, give him a people, to multiply his seed, to give him the land. And then through Isaac and Jacob, you know, uh, Israel goes down to Egypt. They spend 400 years there. They come back out. They spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness thinking they can't conquer Canaan, even though Joshua and Caleb told them that they could. Joshua goes in. He conquers Canaan with the Israelites. And then we have uh, somewhat a, a brief period of blessedness at the end of the book of Joshua. And then in the if you go read the book of Judges, it's complete chaos throughout Israel. Um, they're wrestling with God. And the, the theme of the book of Judges is basically there, is, there, is no, there was no king in Israel in those days. And the king in Israel was meant to represent Israel to God, represent God back to Israel, to uphold the law of God, and to ultimately you know, uh, give God's blessing to the people because he was God's representative to them. And then we have... Saul come in, obviously. Saul was, maybe starts out a little well, but does not end very well as Israel's king. And then God comes through Samuel and anoints David. We all know about David. David David was a great king, but David was a king whose main purpose was to subdue the enemies around Israel in order that Israel could have peace. And because uh, David was a king of, of war and blood. God told him that he would not build a temple, 
that his son would build the temple whenever there was peace in Israel. So after David's dynasty, David's kingship brought peace around the lands of Israel, Solomon comes in and Solomon builds the temple. And at the, you know, in 1 Kings there, it's a very magnificent display and the the glory of God is over all of Israel and Israel's rejoicing and even God seems to be rejoicing that his people have have built him this this beautiful temple and uh, everything's great until you go like two chapters later and and Solomon really starts to go pretty downhill he 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 does pretty much explicitly what God tells the kings not to do in Deuteronomy. He, he goes to Egypt. He marries somebody from Egypt. He brings up chariots and horses from Egypt. Um, and then he, he does some other things that God explicitly tells the kings not to do in Deuteronomy. It, Solomon really starts to go downhill after that. Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews affirms that Solomon was a believer and that Solomon is in heaven, so I'm not going to question that. But Solomon was much stronger in the beginning, at least what we have in the text than he was at the end of his reign. And then after Solomon, it's pretty much all downhill from there. Um, The kingdom splits. All the kings in the northern kingdom are pretty horrible. There's one that might not be all that horrible, but all of them are pretty bad. In in Judah, there's only four good kings. I think that's right, four. Four four good kings. You know, you've got um, Asa's good, um, Jehoshaphat, uh, Josiah, Hezekiah, those are your good ones. And the rest of them are pretty terrible. And so they, they start uh, creating worship places where God has told them they should not. They're only supposed to worship and sacrifice at the temple. Then um, you know, Ahab comes in and he starts uh, mixing worship, worship with God, with, with Baal. Um, and so eventually all of this snowballs into the fact that God casts them out of the promised land. By first, uh, the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, and then Babylon comes in, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he completely ransacks Jerusalem and tears down the temple in 586 B.C. And so we've got these exiles. We're going to focus on Judah here. We've got these exiles of Judah over in Babylon, that's what Daniel covers before Esther. Daniel was, the events in Daniel are about 100 years before the events in Esther. And then um, after we've got the Judean exiles over in Babylon, the kingdom of Persia comes. So Persia was this empire that came, came from the east. Um, most of the, the descendants in Iran right now, they consider themselves Persians what they are so um even stretching over i had a good friend who actually he was from from west india and i always thought he was an indian guy up until i'd known him for like five years and he eventually kind of told me he was a persian i was like okay didn't didn't understand that but yeah so the persian empire actually it it reached from india kind of mid-india all the way up to they they got up to greece and they tried to conquer greece quite a few times and, and greece was was able to kind of fend them off pretty much they never really made a lot far into Greece, but they reached pretty much the border of Greece from India, came over to the Middle East, all the way down to kind of on the corners of Africa up to you know, Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea, and then all the way down to Ethiopia. So the Persian Empire was huge. So that's, that's where we are in Esther. Uh, I won't go in. Alexander the Great comes in and he, he conquers Persia, and then Greek and Romans, the Romans come in and conquer the Greeks. But we're back in the Persian Empire in, in Esther. And we eventually what happens 
in the Persian, Persian Empire, before we get to Esther, let me go back to this. God moves the heart of the Persian king Cyrus, who, uh, uh, by the way, is the only pagan king to ever hold the title, the title of God's anointed. Um, Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, calls, calls King Cyrus of Persia uh, God's anointed. Um, king Cyrus allows the Jews to move back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And then over in Ezra, we get, we get a little piece of this. And actually, Ezra opens up this way. Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus not only says that they can go back and rebuild the, the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild Judah, he actually lets anyone that is in the Persian kingdom go back. Anybody, all throughout from India to, you know, most of, most of them are still in Babylon at this point, or what, former, what was formerly Babylon, but he says you can all go back. We don't have to stay here anymore. And so later on, uh, Darius the Great is going to ascend the Persian throne. And then after his death, his son, Ahasuerus, who we will see in Esther, starts out in Esther 1, in the days of Ahasuerus, who is better known to us in the West by his Greek name, Xerxes I. You know, this is, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 300, which I, I can't recommend because of its nudity. But um, he's, he's that Xerxes. You know, he's the one that the, the 300 fought off. Um, from from the, uh, the Greek writer Herodotus, actually, he writes a lot about the uh, Persian Empire. And he write, writes a lot about Xerxes. Apparently, he was a, a very good-looking man, a very jealous man who um, had you know, wives and um, all the riches, and he thought of himself as a god like most of the kings of the time did. But um, that's, that's where we are. That's our king here, King Ahasuerus, who, as it is referred to in Esther, that, this is Xerxes, Xerxes I. He's going to reign for, for 24 years in the mid-5th mid century B.C., uh, 480-something to, to 460-something, I think. And so this is where we are in the book of Esther. We're in the Persian capital of Susa, which is a little bit, little bit east of Babylon. Um, but that's, that's the setting here. And for some, for some unknown reason, we're not given this in the Bible anywhere, is some of the Jews did not decide to return to Judah. So Cyrus tells them they can all go back. Every one of them, they can go back. But for some, of them, some reason, some of them didn't. So we have this at least uh, a handful here that are in Susa that are going to be um, you know, striving with, with some, of the, some of the Persians that are there. And Esther is going to tell their story. In, in First and Second Chronicles and then Haggai and Zechariah, these books are they're written to encourage all the Jews that have returned to, to, to Judah. Uh, First and Second Chronicles kind of tells their history that God is, is 
first exiled Judah and then brought them back, tells their history. Then Haggai and Zechariah are, are prophecies that are supposed to give, give people hope that are in, that have returned. Um, so they encourage all these Jews that have come back to Judah. Esther is going to elaborate God's covenant commitment to preserve those chosen Jews who did not return. And it's all going to culminate in the celebration of this feast called Purim. That's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, Purim, which is at the very end of the book, it pretty much gives uh, the writers reason for writing the book. Um, I don't know the exact verse, but he, he does say that we write this to, to describe the celebration of Purim, which the Jewish people still celebrate today. I actually watched a YouTube video on this, and it is, it is it's a crazy celebration, um, even in America, but especially over in Israel. Um, it's a couple of days celebration. There's, there's tons of, of feasting and traditions around it. Um, there's apparently a lot of drinking involved, too. But uh, this is something that the Jews still celebrate this day. It's the only, the only feast, the only celebration that the Jewish people ever celebrated outside of the, the, the ones described in the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. You know, you've still got the, the Feast of Booths and the uh, Feast of the Day of Atonement and Passover, but they still celebrate Purim, which is the only one described outside of those books. And so um, we're not really going to focus on, on Purim that much, obviously, but... Um, where, what then can we glean from this book where God is, is nowhere to be found, where he is, I'm going to say, seemingly absent. We all know that God is not absent. He is seemingly absent. We don't really have any cute, neatly packaged moral stories that we can pull out of this. What do we have for our instruction from this book? What could we possibly learn about God from a narrative where God is not only not mentioned, but religion itself is completely absent? You know, we don't have any indication of any kind of religion from the Persian side or the Jews here. Everybody seems pretty, pretty irreligious. Uh, maybe they're, they're spiritual but not religious. I don't know. It's um, kind of a cop-out to me besides the point. Uh, so this, this is going to bring us to uh, one of the, the first very basic lessons in, in biblical hermeneutics. So if you don't know what that word means, it's just interpreting Scripture. Um, the very first lesson is this in this is that you let Scripture interpret itself. So we've got to look elsewhere in the Bible to really get the message of Esther. And then once we, once we have this established, then the complete absence of God is actually going to be a genius. It's going to be a comfort for believers today. So the reason why is that we should derive much hope and comfort when we read Esther because it shows God's commitments to his covenant promises not by miraculous interventions. We have those elsewhere. We have you know, miraculous interventions mainly focused on in the times of Moses and Elijah and Elisha and then when Jesus and the, prophets, Jesus and the apostles come. So it's not always through miraculous intervention that we see that God is committed to his covenant, pro- covenant promises, but in the completely ordinary events. For the Jews that were, were still living in exile... The Holy Spirit is going to use this book to confirm to them that the Messiah, the promised seed, the one that's going to crush the head of Satan, is still going to come from the tribe of Judah, just as God had promised. And this is, we see a a strange uh, person actually uh, declaring this, not this specifically, but she kind of hints at it in, in Esther 6, verse 13. 
So in Esther 6, verse 13, uh, Haman, Haman's already, he's, he's devised his evil plot here. And so before this, before this, uh, the king is, has, has honored Mordecai. We'll talk about why in a couple of weeks. But then, uh, let me go back up to verse 12 in chapter 6. Then Mordecai returns to the king's, returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before, you, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So we have Esther, I mean, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and maybe his friends telling Mordecai that, that you're not going to conquer these people. These people are the Jewish people. Um, the Messiah is going to come from the Jewish people. They probably didn't realize this, but we have this declaration from them that Mordecai is not going to be able to destroy the Jews. Even they realize it now. And this um, kind of, to me, harkens back to you know, the promise to, of the seed in Genesis 3. And, you know, God tells Satan that um, you're not going to conquer the seed. The seed is going to conquer you. Um, and so... We, we can be sure in, in God's promises here. We can be sure that God was still going to bring the Messiah through the, the Jews in Judah and that they were not going to be destroyed. Because not only did Haman want to destroy the Jews in Susa, he was going to destroy and um, Xerxes or Ahasuerus had assured him that he could go destroy all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And remember, the Persian Empire includes, at this point, it includes Jerusalem. It includes the temple. And so we have this really uh, watershed moment here where the, you know, the Messiah may not come from the tribe of Judah. Of course, we know that he always was going to. But uh, this is going to be a comfort for the Jews that are, that are living there in Persia, that the Messiah is still going to come through them. Uh, then for us, perhaps paradoxically, Esther is going to confirm God's providence precisely because God seems absent. Providence, which I'm going to define, this is uh, sort of a loose definition, but God in some invisible and unobservable way governing all creatures, all nature, all actions and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of life without miraculous intervention. It's God governing everything, God providing everything for his people, even in his common grace, providing for unbelievers. And so because we're going to affirm this wonderful, glorious doctrine of God's providence, uh, Christians actually have to reject modern ideas of coincidence, luck, and even randomness. And just so those of you who don't know, I'm a professor of, of data science. I have a Ph.D. in statistics, which uh, has been kind of described as the science of randomness. This is hard for me to say, right? This, we, we can't actually, as Christians, if we're going to affirm God's providence, we can't affirm true randomness. Uh, R.C. Sproul, actually that book right there, I didn't even, I noticed it, that book, Not a Chance, R.C. Sproul goes through and breaks down why there's really not a thing as, as chance or, or true randomness. We can perceive randomness, but it's not really random um, due to God's providence. And so if we don't have this doctrine, we really can't trust in the promise that's, give, that's given in Romans 8.28. You know, for all things work out for the good of those who trust in God, paraphrase. But 
if we're not going to think that, that God is providential overall, we don't know that all things are going to work out for our good. But since God is providential, God is overall, we do know that they will, uh, even though we may not realize it when we're in the moment. So it's, it's impossible to, to study the book of Esther without reading it in the context of the, the rest of, of Scripture, which is it's gonna, this is going to bring us to another basic principle of both understanding the Bible and then understanding ourselves and the events we experience. Without divine revelation, the human experience is inherently ambiguous and cannot be correctly understood. You know, this is, this is one reason why I, I sometimes, uh, pity may not be the right word, but I'm going to use it, pity atheists. Because w- without some sort, of, some sort of higher purpose, we're just, you know, blobs wandering around here trying to make the best of it for 80 years. And then at the end, okay, maybe we've, we've done something good to leave our mark on the world or something like that. Or maybe we've gotten enough pleasure from it. But, uh, you know, without this divine revelation, our whole experience as humanity really just seems kind of irrelevant. We're just this speck in the middle of the universe that is, you know, billions of light years away, and there's no reason for any of it. Hopeless. Completely hopeless. And so uh, this is this going to be great, great comfort for us. Um, so Esther's, Esther's going to illustrate a concrete example of of really how ambiguous and seemingly pointless life would be if God had only acted in history and not also spoken to us. So Esther, in its genius, really makes us appreciate the rest of the Bible. God has has spoken. God is very present, explicitly present in the rest of the Bible, even though he's seemingly absent from Esther. Um, It's going to be a great comfort for us. And I'm getting close to running out of time, so I'm going to just basically read from what I have here. We've got a, a few things to keep in mind while we're going to study this book together. Two main ones, we've already talked about it, divine providence. We're going to see this throughout the book. Just to give a few examples, the downfall of Vashti, Xerxes' uh, first wife, the decision, seemingly random decision, to hold a beauty contest to replace her, which is kind of strange, especially for the, the Persian Empire. Mordecai is going to randomly overhear a plot to kill the king. The king is going to have some insomnia the night before Mordecai's execution. Haman's uh, going to really have a, a seemingly random timing into when he first exactly walks into the court. And then the king is going to enter right as Haman is falling onto Esther's couch, even though he's kind of begging mercy from her. But the king walks in at the exact moment to where it makes it looks like Haman is actually trying to uh, uh, impose himself upon Esther. So... I'm going to keep this, this providence in mind while we study this and also while you live your life. You know, there's, there is no coincidences or random occurrence. But also, even though there's divine providence, there's going to be human responsibility too. We know that even though God is sovereign and providential, that does not absolve us to, of our responsibilities to act. Although we know that the, that out, the outcome of Esther, when the Jews are delivered... We know that this is a divine gift rather than some sort of human achievement. But even though we know this, we see Esther and Mordecai do some things that have some some initiative and courage involved. And without their actions, the outcome obviously would have been, been much different. Jeremiah, a century earlier, told the Jews how they were to behave in exile. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Let me read that real quick. 
Jeremiah 29.4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. So Mordecai and Esther, even without the straightforward moral nobility of Daniel and his friends, do display this favor. They're, they're looking out for their city and the, the Jews that are in the city specifically. So in closing, I'm at time, but this should be short. Why does this matter to Christians today? How can we apply it to our lives? Our world is actually very similar to the world in which Esther and Mordecai lived. Most governments are at best indifferent and most likely openly hostile to our faith. Events in the world take their normal course without any miracles or observable evidence of God's hand. The book of Esther teaches us how to live in the hostile world with courage and integrity, carrying out responsibilities to the best of our abilities, and then trusting in God's providence to protect and provide for us. It was written to those Jews in exile to motivate them to serve wicked rulers with godly courage, trusting in God's hidden providence by which he's going to bring about the Prince of Peace in a very violent and sinful world. This is the same thing we are called to, except we have even more hope. Just like the Jews in Persia, we live in a pagan world. We have no earthly king, no prophets, no further direct divine revelation outside of God's word. We have no onslaught of miracles. Just like Esther and Mordecai, we have mixed motives. We have mixed motives and we're not fully committed to the obedience of our God. And just like those Jews in the Persian Empire, we should expect death and destruction because of our sin. But here's the hope. Just like their fate was reversed, which is a major theme of the book, reversals of fate occur throughout. Our fate's been reversed by the death of one man, a death that the rest of the world saw as insignificant. We know it's not insignificant, though. He rose from the grave. He's still alive today. But after he rose, he did something very peculiar in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, uh, the four Gospels, they detail the last moments of, of Jesus' life a bit differently, all giving us different information. But the last thing that happens in Matthew, you might say it's the Great Commission. Uh, and it is. It's at the very end. The Great Commission's at the very end. Um, but at the end... The very last thing that Matthew says is when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then the last sentence, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Jesus goes away. I'm with you always to the end of the age. And then Jesus goes away. He's still alive. He is still present. We still get comfort from the Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus seems to be absent, he's still here. So we have more hope. So let's keep working in our ordinary lives. Let's keep trusting in God's promises. And let's look forward. You know, they were looking forward to the Messiah's first appearance. Let's look forward to his second appearance. And with that, let's go worship our God. Let's say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the day that we've come together to worship you, to give ourselves of ourselves to you, Lord. 
We're thankful for everything that you've given us in your divine revelation in this book that you've given us to show us who you are and how you care for your people. We pray that you, you bless our study together. We pray that um, you're honored in all that we do. We pray that in this next period, Lord, that um, we give all honor and glory to you, that your name is proclaimed high, and that we look forward to your son's return. In his name we pray. Amen.